Welcome to the Scotland's Choice podcast. The journey to our referendum is underway, so join us as we discuss how together we can build a fairer, a more equal and a more prosperous Scotland. Our goal is to ensure that our listeners are informed, that they're encouraged to get involved and will hopefully inspire others to think about the possibilities for Scotland. The past few years have only served to highlight what allowing Westminster to make choices for us is like. So let's make the choices we want for our families and our communities right here in Scotland. I'm your host, Drew Hendry MP. Now let's find out who's joining me on Scotland's Choice today. Hello, I'm Gillian Martin. I'm the MSP for Aberdeenshire East and former Indie Quine. Um, I used to head up the, the Aberdeen and the Aberdeenshire a cohort of Women for Independence. Hello, I'm Fatima Joji. I'm an SNP activist and I campaign on social justice, gender equality and Scottish independence. I'm a member of Women for Indy as well and I have a background in journalism and international development. Hello, my name is Theo. I'm a politics and international relations uh, graduate, student from Aberdeen University and a founding member of Aberdeen Independence Movement. Well, how brilliant to have you all on the Scotland's Choice podcast for this episode. Uh, welcome uh, to the show. Can I start with uh, Gillian? Gillian, uh, tell us what, what initially got you into politics and how did you become part of the independence movement? Um, I, I guess initially, I suppose, in terms of my, my, my political allegiances and, and, and thinking, I've always been an independence ranter and raver. You know, I've always been having those conversations, you know, since I was like teen, you know, ranting and raving about things. The first political thing I probably ever, ever did was poll tax activism, poll tax marches, probably the first thing I ever went on when I was, when I was a student, but only you know, as a participant. And um, and then I suppose I always make the always make the joke that my first actual like, campaigning was basically driving my father around. Uh, while he was canvassing and leafleting, um, which they, which he counted as driving lessons, um, and, and and the joke is that I never really got beyond second gear because I was always just going street to street. But um, but I didn't actually do any kind of like party politics. I was uh, um, I, I was interested in becoming a, a journalist, and I actually felt quite strongly that you shouldn't be a party member if you're a journalist. Um, I actually didn't end up going into actual journalism or in more television production, but I just remember like somebody quite influential saying to me, "You know, stay away from party politics if you want to be in the media because it's you know it's it's not it's not a, a great move." And so that's what I, I guess my lateness to join party. But when it comes down to it, um, I you know I used to write quite a lot. Um, I used to you know write quite a lot of things online and it got started to get more and more political and that's when Women for Independence was been set up. Um, some of the, the sort of founder members reached out to me because they knew that I was, you know, uh, of, of the same mind and said, do you want to basically take on the reins of setting up a, a chapter, I suppose, that were in the Northeast? And I got I got all the people that I knew, all the women that I knew. Uh, who felt the same way I did, and we started our little campaign group. Campaigning and making the point every five seconds that more women need to be in politics. Mm. So when it came down to it and people turned around and said, okay, so <laughs> you're going to you're gonna do that then? I thought, oh, I'd be a bit of a hypocrite if I didn't. But it genuinely didn't occur to me to get into 
to get into elected politics until Maureen Watt pointed out what a hypocrite I'd be if I didn't. And she was absolutely right. And it's one of the best things I've ever done. And we're glad you, you did, Julian. I, I want to come to Fatima and Theo later on and talk a wee bit about your journey um, towards supporting independence. But but we'll come to that in a little while. The, I think the, the big question I'd like to start with is that in 2014, uh, when we had the independence referendum, uh, the three big issues from the campaign were pensions, uh, borders, and currency. And and just asking you all, and maybe starting with you, Theo, how do you think that's changed? These arguments have changed since twenty fourteen. I think they've changed quite an awful lot, really, haven't they? Um, I think Brexit's a, a a large part of that. Obviously, as as a young person in twenty fourteen, I think the the case for independence was inspiring for young people. That's what, what got me involved in it. You know, it was kind of the idea of creating a better nation, a, a socially just Scotland that you didn't think would be possible mm-hmm. being part of the union. I guess I think in 2014, you could almost still understand why people would vote no, even if you didn't necessarily agree with that viewpoint. Um, and, and since then, now, the case has kind of been made for us from our opposition really so you know i mean if you look for example what you were mentioning earlier about pensions being one of the big issues you know uk state pension is is not fit for purpose i think it was just this week you had reports coming out that a total of 134,000 pensioners missed out on their full entitlement going to errors for the mm-hmm. department for working and pensions uh, dating back to 1985 so yeah uh, the uk state pension is the worst in the developed world and have the highest retirement age so issues like that aren't going away I think as I was mentioning as well the, the case for independence is, is we kind of haven't really needed to be campaigning for it you can see every day in the, the halls of Westminster just the state that the UK's gone since 2014 and essentially all the credible arguments that the Better Together campaign had made in 2014 seem to be um, kind of being combated by themselves it's, it's kind of kind of moved from can scotland afford to be independent to can scotland can, afford to be linked to this uh, absolutely union, hasn't yeah. it? what are your what are your thoughts on that no absolutely i feel that the in fact um due to our, the contemporary state of affairs um you know as Theo mentioned we have all these um the twin shocks of brexit and covid that have just basically highlighted how different um, our government's approach and different issues. But in terms of the um, issues that you mentioned, pensions, currency, border, I, I think, you know, what from the decision-making table, it takes a while for things for us to actually start to feel the impact of decisions. And I think that's what really... Um, reinvigorated um, the drive for independence because, you know, we saw the Waspy Women campaign, these decisions that have been made, and we understand that we are seeing how Scotland has thought differently and would have made different decisions. And I think it's just brought out the priorities of the very different governments. You know, we always see that it is a tale of two governments. So it's certainly brought out the different priorities. It's a case of they can do this, but they choose not to because this is their priority. They'd rather spend money on Mm. um, nuclear weapons, etc., rather than spending money on addressing these issues. Um, So I think people have begun to realise from the decision-making to actually feeling the impact of these decisions that um, certainly we we think differently and that these issues are only going to get worse. And here's a government that's made it clear that they're not going to go a different way because these are their own priorities, which is different from Scotland if we look at our voting record, etc. So um, we're certainly seeing a strengthening of um, arguments to try and break away and set up a country that we actually want and uh, need. And That's yeah. right. And, and Julian, you've been at the heart of seeing the, the very difference because you've been 
uh, well, sometimes virtually, sometimes they're in person, but in the chamber over the past couple of years when these uh, decisions have been made and they are very different. But look at these, these key issues uh, since 2014. How do you think the arguments have changed and what do you think's happened to the... Uh, to the public's view. I agree very much with what Theo and, and Fatima have said. It's like, I never felt the arguments particularly held much weight, but I think they were more soundbite stuff. Um, and, and that's actually the danger of them. Mm. I mean, Drew, you'll re you remember, you know, you would go to doors and people would just trot out, what about the currency? What? And it's because they'd heard Al Alistair Darling constantly going on it, constantly mm. going on it. So if you didn't take the time really to sort of like dig into what was behind those sound bites, which if you did, you'd realise that it was, you know, nonsense. I mean, you know, um, then, you know, everyone sort of like felt that, you know, the repetition of the project fear messaging was really hitting home. And I remember that you would get, oh, I remember going out in the, the Margot, the, the Margot Mobile. I don't know yes, if you remember, remember that. that. And uh, and I was in um, sort of quite, quite a kind of um, deprived area in Aberdeen. And it became apparent that when we got to, to this place in Woodside, and there was actually quite a lot of Eastern European people living there, um, it become apparent that the Better Together mob had got there before us, and it was uh, people were genuinely terrified mm -hmm. that we were at their door, and that we were going to have them deported, <laughs> and they'd been told they'd just been told all this negative lies. There was a lot of that so, too from European uh, citizens in particular. That were yeah, yeah. Of yeah. course, you, you do realise that you'll end up being deported because, and then in Scotland because you know you won't be part of the EU, and you know you mm -hmm. can forget all the routes that you've put down here because you'll be getting wheat back and, and and whatever. So people were, and the same was happening with the with the pensioners. I remember a fantastic speech given by Christine Graham after. After the independence referendum in the chamber where she absolutely wiped the floor with the Better T Together campaign and how they had put the fear of God into to old people, mm. you know, so, by actually phoning them up and just spouting this. Of course, you, you do realise that you're going to be in complete penury because you're going to lose your, your pension on day one. And of course, now we've got very recent arguments like, you know, Fatima and Theo were talking about, you know, what they're actually doing to the pension and what the pension is actually worth and whatever. The, thing well, is, the, the worst there. pension... The worst level of pension in yeah. Western Europe, yeah, it's a, yeah, yeah, and it's their pension, and it's no, it's it's a terrible pension, but it's theirs, mm -hmm. and it doesn't belong to the UK state; it belongs to the person. Mm -hmm. I think the currency thing is something that we are um, going to have to be absolutely watertight, and I think we are. I think we've moved on from that. You know, we'll we'll, we'll use the pound; it's our pound type mm -hmm. argument, um, because that again. Although we always could, and although that was a, a decent argument, it just left the, the UK state in a position to be say, no, you can't, mm -hmm. you know? And that, that so all that, that negativity, it's just such a shame. We, we ran a positive campaign, we always run positive campaigns in the SNP about what we can do and what we, we could be. And I think we always need to do that. Um, but we need to be aware that, you know, a very negative campaign did resonate with mm. a lot of people, put the fear of God into people. The difference this time is that we have got things to show them saying, well, they said then that this would happen, but look what happened here. So we're probably going to have to not so much eke into sort of negative campaigning, but remind them of some of the negative things that have happened as a consequence of voting no last mm -hmm. time. But I think that our message should always be, this is what we can be. Imagine what we can be 
In fact, you don't need to imagine. Here's an example of what we could be mm. with the powers of X, Y, and Z. Mm. And you can see the opposite of that, as we've heard from uh, Fatima and yeah. Theo uh, playing out just now. And it's, what, it's really interesting when you look back, particularly at all these arguments in the Better Together campaign from 2014, where they've just, you see, you said about Christine's speech blowing them apart. Well, they've, they've blown them apart themselves. You know, I mentioned the, the, the low state of the pension, but of course, we've seen the triple lock going on pensions. We've seen all these things that they said would happen if we voted for independence. One other thing that's really anyway. interesting. One, one, sorry to interrupt you, but one of the other things that's really interesting, if you spend any amount of time uh, in watching the chamber in Holyrood, and you saw on Thursday, because um, Angus Robertson was taking constitutional questions, is that those old arguments from Better Together, they're never deployed. Mm. They're never deployed by people. It's just, it's the, oh, it's a settled will. We already had a vote. You know, it's, it's, the, it's a procedural stuff. Oh, you, you, we can't have another one. Nobody wants it, you know. And then, of course, we come back and say, eh, we just had an election in which we were elected in a mandate to have an independence referendum. So it's not even in the kind of meat of the, can we be independent, in, in, independent anymore? They're, they're just throwing procedure at us. Mm. Indeed, and, and, and that's pretty much all they've got left. Well, well let's throw this one open and, and maybe start with you, Fatima. Given we, we talked about, we talked just now about um, you know these arguments to uh, EU nationals and other people uh, here, and, and a lot of the, um, the the positive argument for independence about how Scotland could project itself, how it would take its place in the world. Given the growth of soft power that the Scottish government has been engaging in, and we've seen a lot of effort from the Scottish government, and the declining place of the UK in the world with our uh, global Britain, which really means little Britain, which has pulled things back, where where do you see, where do you all see an independent Scotland fitting into the world stage? I know we've always talked about um, an independent, um, an independent Scotland having a key role in on the global stage and that is completely true and it's not just down to the resources it's down to our outlook our progressive outlook the way we think the way we vote etc so i see us taking a really key role and not just within the eu we'll have i think we'll have a very strong role within the eu as well yeah. and globally because we if you look at our various policies um we're actually leaders in so many different areas and um, Gillian will obviously Gillian's played a key figure herself in in period products as well yeah, I, I want to remember. come on I want to come back to that <laughs> yeah. I won't go into it as well mm-hmm. but I, I think many many remember Gillian um how she really pushed forward in the drive for um period products and we've seen the ripple effect that's actually had worldwide we've seen the discussion that's been brought about regarding um period products so just looking at Scotland as we are now tied to the UK we're already creating a lot of noise we're already being looked to as examples of what a progressive world can look like and this is with us shackled to Westminster limited in what we can do so imagine if we're just freed imagine yeah. if we can actually do what we want to do and mm-hmm. um, we uh, it's, the opportunities are endless and I know this sounds like it might sound like a unicorn dream but we only need to look at examples that are happening now and um, just to show how much power we well, have. Well that's, in, the, that's the very point yeah. isn't it Fatima because yeah, this isn't yeah. a unicorn dream you can see real examples of countries doing yeah, these things exactly. and, and engaging yeah. So that's a thing to look at so absolutely and um, we will have a very key role in this global stage and it'll be a powerful one as well. Mm-hmm. And Theo? Yeah, well, I agree completely with Fatima, but I think looking back when I was I was 15 when the referendum happened, and I think it was almost just a very natural reaction to the political situation that was happening at the time for me, and that, you know, it just made total sense that Scotland should be independent. I think that comes down to the fact that, you know, 
the question of how do you think is the best way to sort of make our, the Scottish economy the best it can be? How's the best way to make political decisions that will have a positive impact on your everyday life? And it's just, it's things like that for me that is the type of future that Scotland has as an independent country. It's about putting decisions into our own hands. It's, you see every day down in Westminster that um, things that have been implemented down there from a sort of London-centric view, viewpoint of the economy mm-hmm. are often negatively impacting, especially areas like the North East of Scotland, which I'm sure we'll talk about later on. So I think it's kind of just a, a very natural thing that I thought just made total sense from, from the start, from 2014 until now. I think it's just kind of cemented that, that idea uh, in my head totally now. But um, yeah, it's just the, the simple fact that it's normal to be an independent country and the way that the UK government has gone in my lifetime, certainly, uh, it would be much better for the country as well uh, uh, to be an independent country. Julian, what are your thoughts on that um that kind of soft power uh, approach from Scotland? Yeah, so obviously before the pandemic, I was in a position, we were all in a position to be able to go and do parliamentary stuff in various other countries. I went to the Arctic Circle Conference twice with the, when I was convening the Environment Climate Change Committee. And you have quite a lot of like bilateral meetings. Um, and of course, with Arctic Circle, it was obviously with the Nordic countries. And even, you know, I'm, I'm there and I'm, I'm representing, you know, representing the committee, but obviously they know which party I'm, I'm from and I've maybe got a Tory with me. And it's a very uncomfortable space to, to be sitting there as a unionist because everybody's saying, when are you going to be independent? When are you going to be independent? You know, this is all you get. It's the same when we went with the Education Committee to Finland and Sweden. They're champing at the bit to welcome you in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and a lot of that is down to, you know, things like the way think that what happens in Scotland is reported. But a lot of it is also down to Nicola Sturgeon having a, a play, the place that she does and the reputation she does on, on the world stage, particularly in, in, in Europe. But even, you know, the, the, the work that's, that, that's been done, that we are taking forward some of the, the more progressive things that are already enacted in, for example, you know, Denmark, Sweden, Finland, you know, and we are referencing them and we are engaging with those parliamentarians and how they did that. They have an understanding of what we want to be like. Mm-hmm. And we want to be what part of their club. We've got more in common with the Scandinavians than we do with what goes on in Westminster politically. Mm-hmm. And that's understood. But one of the, th- the things that's been particularly disappointing is that we wanted to enact the all our laws into the United Nations Conventions of the Rights of the Child. Yeah, indeed. And, and we were, we, I went through Parliament, I was on the committee that, that scrutinised it, and everyone voted for it, every party voted for it. And then Westminster government turns around and says you don't have the the rights to do this because you're going into reserved uh, matters and they're taking the Scottish government to court. Mm-hmm. This is rights of children, children in action mm-hmm. Scots law. And we want to be part of the global community that has signed up to that mm-hmm. because they're very important. The UK are dragging their heels in it, so Scotland decided to go first. And that's an example of us being held back mm-hmm. in that that global space, but also in that human rights space as well. So these are all sort of things that we can be pointing to as well. And we get accused of using that, of doing it on purpose. Or oh, you went and you tried to enact that into law, knowing full well that we'd turn around and say no. Well, no, we didn't. 
Well, there was furious backpedalling from the Tories in the Scottish Parliament, wasn't there? Who, having voted unanimously, you know, yeah, all, all oh, they didn't know. And, and this was a, a, it was an SNP trap or whatever to get them to yeah. vote for this, and it, it was it was quite comical to watch from the outside, but obviously a deeply serious question. And you know, the rights of the child is something that should be enshrined, um, you, you know, in law here, and it's uh, bizarre that they've tackled that. It, I, I just want to talk about issues in the northeast, as Theo indicated that's something we want to get into. Starting with you, uh, Gillian, there are some some kind of things that affect people every day. It's, a, it's unfortunately a case in my constituency, and I, I know it's the same in yours, where, where people are hammered with excessive delivery charges due to just where they live. In an independent Scotland, how could the Scottish Government look to tackle uh, this injustice? I guess you, can, you have that, that universal kind of agreement that basically it's the same charge whatever um but I, I suppose it comes down to the fact of all these sort of like you know consumer powers and laws that lie in the reserved space would then be transferred to a scottish parliament so you could be looking at you know how all the kind of like you know the the consumer protections that, that, that people have and I suppose it's all, all the kind of um, the t- trading what, what it would mean to trade in Scotland mm-hmm. you know you don't want to dis- you don't want to disadvantage people you don't want to to, to make it that businesses are uh, don't want to trade in Scotland on the one hand but at the same time you want to protect your your, your consumers and some of the I mean, you've done a great deal of work on on the the delivery charges. Richard Lockhead mm, has done a, a power of work as well, and actually uh, reaching out to his constituents and finding out some of the absolutely extortionate—I mean, just extortionate—rates uh, that we're getting. And it, you know, I, I think that's it, it. Just comes into that one of those other things that we would have power over. What would we actually do to stop it? We'd need to think about it and we need to look at it very carefully. But it's just not right. I mean, if you live in Orkney or Shetland, it just must be dreadful. Basically, you're effectively saying that your cost of living and you're dependent on a lot of deliveries is much higher than the rest of Scotland, much higher than the UK. But also quite a lot of the stuff that you see is actually bonkers. I mean, you know, if I get somebody in uh, Inverurie or, or Turriff saying that they are remote, people mm. will say to them, but you live in a remote Scotland. I mean, so rude, first yeah. of all. Mm-hmm. But, but also, you live in the Highlands. No, we're not in the Highlands. But even if we were, we're still in the UK. And you have said on your website that you supply the same rate or free delivery to the whole of the UK. Okay. So don't all of a sudden exclude you. And they're excluding you once you've made the purchase as well. A lot of the times you're getting to the point where you're already kind of like putting all your details. And then all of a sudden it comes up and says it's going to be a hundred quid square, you know? Well, you're, so, you're absolutely right about some of these ridiculous charges. I mean, we've, we've been told that, you know, for example, Nairn's in the, the middle of the ocean at times here. And we've been uh, told that, you know, that, that uh, Inverness isn't on the UK mainland, for example, uh, you know, as well, which is which is quite bizarre. Uh, but but of course, if if they, you know, if an independent Scotland had its way, it can introduce a, a number of measures, of you, as you've said. And if they're looking for any ideas, I did take a bill which wasn't picked up by the UK government to the parliament, just explaining how they could do that. So that's there. It's just yeah. another example of how the cost of living... Uh, how Scotland is disadvantaged by having the UK in charge of 
what happens here. Talk about unfairness. In 2014, David Cameron promised Scotland a, a, an energy, an, an oil bonanza, £200 billion. He promised that the, uh, the North East would get carbon capture and storage at, uh, uh, you know, that that would be set up. There's going to be a billion pound investment uh, in that. Uh, Lib Dem, uh, Ed Davey, the energy secretary at the time, promised that would create thousands of jobs. Evidently, those promises were broken, these things didn't happen. Uh, looking to the future, how do how do we transition the Northeast economy to renewable and sustainable jobs, Julian? Well, um, interesting that you mentioned that because I've got a report coming out. Last summer, we did a survey with oil and gas workers um, who want to transition. And we just asked them a, a series of very simple questions about how they were getting on. You know, what, mm. if, you, if you've done it, how did you do it? If you haven't been able to do it, what's the, been the barriers? What what's your experience? And a lot of what's a lot of a lot of what's stopping people are things that we don't have to wait for an independent Scotland for. A lot of it, particularly, is around certifications so they might be working in oil and gas and you've got certificates in order to be able to do whatever it is that you, you do in the discipline whether it's um, be offshore and, and work as an electrician but you would think that if you've got all those certificates to do with like being an electrician for example that you can then use them also to go and work in renewables but you can't mm. you have to go and do them again but with the badge of it being for the renewable sector when in fact the content of the courses might be almost exactly the same so there's things that we need to tackle there some things that I'm you know I was speaking when Paul Wheelhouse was was the energy minister he was very aware of and I used to used to work with him quite a lot on trying to get this this sorted out um the renewable sector and oil and gas sector need to come together more mm-hmm. we need to stop talking about them in silos it's our energy sector and this is where I think that the, the, the recent announcement about Scotland is important. And a lot of people are howling in disgust, for example, that BP has got one of the you know the, the options. A lot of Tories are howling about it, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, they are. <laughs> they can't think of anything else to say. But actually, the fact is, like, BP is based, based in Aberdeen. They've got this massive workforce. They've got this great, huge infrastructure. And that's transition in action if they're then diversifying into, into wind because they can actually be deploying their staff and they have that almost that internal. So that's a good thing. And it means that they stay in Aberdeen. It means that all the people that, that, that the three of us will know who, who are in the supply chain to that company will be guaranteed work into the future and more jobs will spring up as a result of that. So there's an awful lot we can be doing in, in the, the, the devolved space. But, but you mentioned carbon capture and storage. It's basically three times now that they've mm. pulled the, the rug from under us on that and wonderful announcement from Michael Matheson a couple of weeks ago that we are going to put 80 million into the ACORN project and the Scottish cluster because we will not meet our net zero ambitions without carbon capture and storage but I remember and you'll remember too Drew that the whole carbon capture and storage was having held up during the referendum as well we won't get that Mm -hmm. and I I seem to remember that been very soon after the vote that George Osborne took the funding from it. It, it was the 2015 what? budget where he pulled the plug on that. And, uh... Yeah, and then the same thing happened last year as well. So we have to step in, but of course we ha- are having to take money from our budget elsewhere. But I think it's been the right decision. Mm-hmm. We have to plow ahead where we can mm-hmm. and remind people that they're holding us back, but we're plowing ahead. Imagine what we could do with all the powers. Imagine mm-hmm. what we could do with borrowing powers. Indeed.
Fatima, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's just because um, it's just a conversation I had with a friend who does work in the sector. So obviously their job is supported by the, by the current state of the oil and gas sector. And I think one of the biggest fears they mentioned, and I think they'd like to hear more from the government, um, Julian's and the Scottish government, is them making a big point about how the burden won't be so much on the employers when it comes to transitioning, because I think that's their biggest fear. Um, not just from them, but also their colleagues. Their biggest fear is the cost to them. The biggest fear is um, because it's a change, you know, people fear change and, you know, it's the cost to them. They're seeing it as Mm -hmm. employers not taking responsibility for that change as well. So it's more of, you know, ordinary voter, how am I going to be safe in the future through this transition? Because right now they're just seeing it as the burden is going to be on them and everything's going to go wrong. It's going to affect their livelihood because their job's currently supported. That's the thing. So I think they just want to see more from the government, just showing that this is not going to be the case. The burden is not going to be on you as an employee. Mm. And what can, are you going to do to actually, or want put a better word, to actually kill that fear that that's going to happen? So it's just to put it out there and um, yeah. maybe worth, yeah. Indeed. You mentioned earlier, uh, Fatima, I want to, to go back to something you uh, you touched on because I think, think this is important about how we you know, tackle things differently in Scotland. You were talking about the period poverty uh, issue. Um, Julian, I know you've done a, a, a power of work on period poverty already and, and continue to do so. Um, I think it's, as time of recording, it's a year ago uh, that the period product spill was passed unanimously in the Scottish Government. The, the, the SNP conference also recently passed a, a motion urging the government to legislate on the harassment of women. The, the difference is, in approach between Scotland's two governments is clear. How do we improve on that, though, after independence? See, after independence, I would be campaigning very, very heavily for, I think, what would be the biggest game changer with regards to um, equality for for women. Equality for women, but also um, supercharging our economy, and that would be universal childcare, mm-hmm. not just to 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 five and 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 the, the, we were doing we're doing great things in that space, but um, I I always I always always tell a story. I used to tell this story every time I stood up in any kind of events uh, during the independence referendum about the the region. The former Norwegian prime minister was asked by one of the American newspapers what the secret of Norway's economic success was, and I, might, I reckon that the journalist was expecting him to say oil and gas, and he didn't. He said. Um, secret to our economic success is that we allow women to to go and work without having to worry about paying for childcare, mm-hmm. and that is why we are a rich country, because our tax take from that, what what we invest in childcare, it, it, we get dividends back in terms of the income tax that the women generate, but not just the income tax and doing the kind of low level jobs that can fit in with their their, their care responsibilities, that women actually progress through their career without having these issues about gender pay gap or dropping out of the workforce, et cetera. So they actually are able to really thrive in the workplace in the mm-hmm. same way that, that the men do. Mm-hmm. Um, and they made that decision. It might look like a cost to provide childcare for as many children as you have at whatever age they are, but it's actually a saving because it allows women the flexibility to actually not stop their, their careers, which is um, could be viewed as being a bit of a waste of money, particularly when you're highly qualified or they've reached a certain point in their, their career. 
So the income tax take from having our families not struggling with the childcare costs that they have and the childcare availability that they have would, and the, um, the, the income tax take from that would be massive, mm-hmm. but it would really make a big difference in terms of women's equality. Because when it comes down to it, I mean, I certainly was in the, I went part-time when I had our, our kids because my husband was the one that earned a little bit more than me. He was the one that had the, the, the better pension. Uh, he's a deputy head teacher. Um, I was a, a lowly, a lowly uh, lecturer. And, but also we're not dependent on things like your grandparents being mm. involved in the, the childcare as well. I had a really good conversation recently with a care experienced parent about how they don't have that. So they need this universal childcare because they don't have that wider family to fill the gaps. So I think that after independence, that's the big ticket item for me. And, and, uh, just now, and, and just, it's not just going to help women, it's going to help yeah. everyone. And, and just now, as you've mentioned, we're making you know uh, some different decisions on childcare in Scotland to provi- provide more of it. Again, very recently, we've seen the Scottish government doubling the, the Scottish child payment to... Yeah. Uh, to, to to try and mitigate um, or, and help uh, people against some of the things that are happening at Westminster with the government that we didn't vote for at Westminster where they've been uh, slashing universal credit, taking away the uplift back of £20 a week, where where we've had the, uh, the, the, the notorious and horrific rape clause as part of universal uh, credit uh, for a while. These, these things are... Um, uh, these, these things are not decisions that I believe that the Scottish public would support or make. And and like I say, in, in comparison where we've had the ability to do so, as you've just pointed out, you know, we've, we've introduced, for example, those different uh, mitigations, but also things like 30 hours free childcare for eight children ages uh, two to three. Fatima, do you want to uh, say something on this? Gillian, like, she has so much expertise, so I think she's covered, like, so much here, but... I think just as an ordinary activist, um, I think, you know, you just sort of sit back. The argument I usually make um, for why we need an independent Scotland is we're actually seeing that the UK government, I think it's, it's obvious, to be honest, that every decision they make hurts, hurts women the most. And Gillian mentioned something really important about costs. I think that's all they see, the costs of implementing this policy, which will actually help women. It just goes to show that they think that helping 50% of the population is going to be expensive to them. It just goes to show how they view um, equality in this sense mm-hmm. when actually you know there are some investments that are worth making because of the returns you get and we don't even need to look far we've got examples in Europe like Finland Norway we've got these examples of the investments you make in women that actually create a healthier society in every aspect like it permeates every um, dimension you can think of and um, whether that's the economy whether that's the family life whether that's um health sector mm-hmm. so i think the uk government don't see women as a good investment i know it might be a strong argument to make and some people might be open to challenge this but if you look at the way they're going with some policies i think that's what gives me the right to say that well, yeah i think um, i think you've brought us yeah i think you've brought us around in, in, in a, a useful circle in terms of we, we we've been talking about you know issues affecting women they're like period poverty and childcare yeah. and so forth but but you brought us back to actually our previous subject which was really important you know and, and we're, we're talking about the renewable industries and the industries yeah. in the northeast what, what do you feel fatima that can be done to encourage more female participation in sectors like like that going forward oh well to be honest if I think of my sister as an example so my sister is a woman in STEM she's a Muslim 
Brown, Black, Muslim women in STEM. Um, she's a scientist. Um, she just moved over from Edinburgh. She was working in Scottish Water. She's now taking a job up in Aberdeen now. And having conversations with her, not seeing herself there, number one, is the reason why she didn't want to take that. She didn't want to go into STEM in the first place. So that's a very, I think we underestimate how important it is to actually see women there, first of all. Mm-hmm. But then the difficulty is actually getting women in there it's not as easy as saying oh we need to see more women you know it's just investigating the barriers so if I think about the barriers that her superiors faced as well is a lot of it has to do with the stigma of women's capabilities of the, the traditional roles imposed on women so I think a lot of it has to be about us changing the chat that's very important I think stigma and obviously traditional mindsets Mm-hmm. I'm not going to pretend they're not easy they're easy to change though in fact I expect them to take decades to change but that's what we need to really invest in heavily if I think about what my sister went through to actually get into STEM all the barriers she had to break as a woman to get there and all the stories she hears from her superiors as well so getting women there is really important and the other thing is the lack of support so Gillian has also mentioned um, it just goes to show you the knock-on effect different um, policy areas have on women because mm-hmm. another thing is once you get women into STEM okay what's going to happen because they've still got these responsibilities they feel they have to take care of then you, you go into the discussion of childcare. care um, they're ordinary human beings a lot of them have children a lot of women my sister works with have children mm-hmm. child care they're forced to go part-time part-time now is another issue because in her line of work, part-time is not really looked as something that's advisable. You know, they they try to encourage flexibility, but the women themselves, the choice is taken away from them on whether or not to go part-time. Some of them do want to go full-time with children, they don't mind. Some of them would like to go part-time, but the fact Mm -hmm. that they're forced to go part-time, they don't really have that choice to go full-time. So, you know, you have that childcare aspect. And then it affects another thing, promotions. So it's just just, uh, this whole cycle you see. And then when you bring all that together, you wonder why we don't have enough women. So it just goes to show that you can't really tackle one thing in isolation. I think we all know that already. So there's so much for us to work on um, that we need to bring together. So what, failing in one policy is just going to affect everything else. So there's so much work. I know it sounds really confusing. Well, that, well that's, really you, you've, underlined, but... you've underlined exactly why independence is important, because you need that suite of powers to be able to do all of those things. Because if you've got the barriers like, you know, I was talking about the universal credit issues and so forth. You've got barriers like that in place. If you haven't got ability to do flexible childcare, if you can't move your money uh, to different things in the right way to balance those things, it doesn't work as well. And we know that the Scottish government government's been investing highly in STEM education. The UK government's been uh, urged <laughs> time and time again to do uh, more to support women getting into green jobs, you know, but that's something we can really make a difference with here. Yeah, I'd like yeah. to mention, actually, when, when I f- first got elected, I was in the Economy Committee and I pressed the uh, committee to do work on gender pay gap. And Fatima's absolutely right. I mean, you can do all the work in the world about, like, doing, like, things for, like, young women and encouraging them to get into STEM, but there's a thing called the leaky pipeline that's really interesting. And there's certain points in a women's, like, career tra- trajectory where they leak out. So you're only just, like, you're you're, you're a young woman and you're interested in becoming an engineer and then you get put off in your teenage years by actually doing it at university because there's not any other women that you're seeing you go in you go for that day of of like you know you go in to visit university and all the professors are, are men all mm-hmm. the students you meet are men and you just yeah so that's a, a leak where you can come out you make it past that and you actually end up there all your peers, all you, you know, you're maybe like you know in the minority of women in that course. 
and then there's the you know the caring responsibilities you can leak out and whatever. But that whole thing about gender pay gap is really important because the UK government have paid lip service to the gender pay gap. Big companies with over 100 employees have to report their gender pay gap. Mm. They don't have to take any action in narrowing it. And that's one thing in an independent Scotland we, we would do. Also things around procurement, you know, so like government give support. If they could decide not to give to support people who had a large gender pay gap. And then companies would have to do something about it. They would have to look at who they promote. And this is not like positive action in terms of like getting women on boards and all the rest of it. This is actually looking right throughout a company as to are we making sure that women in our company get the opportunities to progress, but also the opportunities to stay with us and not make the decisions that Fatima's just mentioned. This is an important subject, and we we could talk, I think, even further at length about this because there's so much opportunity uh, for us to to go into there. Uh, But obviously, as I I mentioned, I think we, you know, to really fully exploit that, we need to have all the powers available to us, which brings us back to uh, something I promised I'd catch up on uh, with you. Theo and Fatima, you represent AIM. Could you outline exactly what AIM is for our listeners who may be unaware? Theo, perhaps you could start with that? Yeah, of course. AIM was set up in January 2018, I, I believe. Um, and it was a group of grassroots independent supporters from Aberdeen and to the northeast area um, who had basically come together. I guess there was a wee bit of frustration for the campaign for independence on a personal level with all of us, you know. Um, And the idea was that, in fact, actually on a personal level, I got a bit of inspiration through um, spending some time in Catalonia, spent some time in Barcelona, and looked at the campaigning methods that they were using. And although there was maybe not a a referendum set in stone or anything, there was a continuous campaign in the ANC in Catalonia for independence that was constantly working uh, towards that goal, always producing materials and campaigning, canvassing, doing whatever uh, they felt was the right thing to do at the time in order to progress the case for independence in that area. So I think, you know, we, we took that over there and we thought, you know, we need, especially somewhere in the northeast of Scotland, you know, I think it's very much what Ian believes is that if you can't win over the northeast of Scotland, you're probably not going to win independence throughout the whole country. You know, the northeast of Scotland is a very unique case for independence, you know, you need a localised uh, case for it throughout the whole of the, the North East. So localism was at the heart. It was about creating a local case for independence across the North East with local messaging uh, and targeting local issues, really, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, and the, the key thing was that we didn't want to be a distribution centre for other organisations and just producing and uh, sort of doing the, the, the power of work that activists would do on the ground level for it. Um, for kind of a national campaign or, or organisation. So it was about kind of taking the lead and actually sort of uh, pushing the message out in the North East and kind of being the, le- the leaders of that, that voice and, you know, um, working towards making our own materials, making our own leaflets, having our own campaign days, having um, big sort of conferences that you will, I'm sure we'll talk about later on. It, it was about putting us in a place where we can we can make that positive case for independence every day, you know, without a, without a campaign. Um, and I, th- I think it's been it's been really successful in doing that. You know, we've got research papers in the pipeline with uh, with Business for Scotland that'll be really really helpful for um, for our messaging. And uh, obviously, I'm sure we'll talk about it later on. But the Progress CS conference as well um, in in the next couple of months as well. Mm-hmm. And, and Fatima, could you tell us a wee bit about the um, the, the structure, the, whether or not it's party of 
affiliated and, and maybe about events coming up. I believe there's a you're hosting a big indie event this year. Can you can you give us a hint of what that will be? This is your big chance to plug it to our listeners. <laughs> when is it? Yeah. Where can people buy tickets? All those kinds of things. Yeah, and so in terms of structure, um, so yeah, we make a point not to be party affiliated, and we're not in terms of structure. We have people who are from different parties. Um, and we have people who are not a member of any party. Um, we don't have members who are Tories, but we mm. have had Tory voters come to our events. We have identified them, which is great, and which makes us really happy because it just goes to show that we have some people interested in the argument for independence. So for whatever reasons they come to the event, or we hope that they leave at least thinking that maybe we do have a point to what we're saying um, in terms of the argument for independence with a northeast focus. Um, so... Yes, so the structure, we're not party affiliated at all. Um, and in terms of events coming up, so we've got our first big one, which we sadly had to postpone um, due to COVID, but um, that's a choice we don't regret because, um, you know, um, the health pub- health and safety of the public will always come first. Of course. And it's an in-person event. So we've moved it to May. We've made sure it's after the council elections so that um, because a lot of us are actually activists as well so we hope to assist either our candidates or if they're standing themselves give them time to campaign so it's now on may the 22nd we have an amazing lineup of speakers most of them from the northeast um for obvious reasons but we've also pulled in some speakers from other parts of scotland because of their expertise in certain topics which they can make a case for in the northeast as well so we do expect a big lineup. Uh, so far, we've got people like Mike Russell secured as well, who's one of our keynote speakers. Locally, we have Stephen Flynn. Um, we're still working on securing more, but we're keeping it under wraps for now. Um, but we hope to make a big announcement with our full list of speakers when we release the brochure, which we're working on as well. And the event, we're going to have different discussions. So we have panels looking at energy, the energy case for independence, and the multicultural case for independence. So uh, uh, recognising the diversity of Scotland and what we can actually do on the world stage. So that will focus on our global um, platform. And we also have um, arguments looking at the healthcare service as well and what we can do in an independent Scotland. We're looking at so many different topics. We're also featuring women for independence because Mm -hmm. it's very important to amplify the voices of women in this argument where they're either sidelined or almost reduced to non-entity so we've got women for independence leading on that we want to give it we've given them full reins and so they're working on a full few panels for us as well and all women focused we also have a youth panel CEOs leading on that so not only are we exploring different topics but we're also looking at different demographics because we want to capture as much as Scotland as we can it's a full day event there's food included and we hope that you actually make the most of enjoying Aberdeen as well. We'll give you time to have a look around Aberdeen after um, the event. So tickets are on sale on our website as well and also on our social media. We are, we're working with the National to keep pushing out press releases so you can find it on the National as well. So Great, so keep an eye out for that. It, it, it sounds really <laughs> exciting. I think, I'm sure we're all looking forward to it. A, a, a few mm-hmm. quick quick questions. We're, we've um, we've had a, a great time chatting uh, uh, today, but I, I don't um, want to abuse uh, my, uh, my, my keeping you here uh, too long. Uh, one of the strengths from the 2014 uh, 
campaign of the Yes movement was that, um, you know, we had lots of street uh, stalls, canvassing teams and things like that. Um, you know, the, 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 there'll be a, obviously we've just come through the pandemic. Will campaigning be different this time? Will it be a mix of different things? Asking you all, uh, how do you see campaigning for the referendum that's coming up? Uh, you know, what do you think that's going to be like? Um, personally, um, I think... It's very interesting hearing what Fatima's talked about for their, their programme because I think that was one of the real strengths of, of the last campaign was having lots of groups that focused on demographics. And I think that we maybe need to strengthen that in, in what we're doing the next time round. Like, for example, we have um, we, we, we need to have like farmers for yes, having a bigger profile. Mm-hmm. We need to have um, energy workers or oil and gas workers for uh, speaking to their peers. That was the strength of Women for Independence. I genuinely think, think that Women for Independence really made a massive difference in terms of getting more women to vote yes in 2014. We had a good two years run up to that. So I'd like to see these other sort of niche groups, young people, need to speak to other young people, middle-aged wifeys like myself need to speak to other middle-aged wifeys. You know, it's really, really important because I know what motivates my my tribe, you know, and and I think more of that, more of that niche campaigning rather, obviously with a background of a big yes movement and all the kind of like voter ID, really, really important. But I would like to see more substantial groups mm-hmm. start now, Indeed. Fatima? I was just going to say, in terms of um, campaigning now, um, in light of COVID, I think it, uh, we always say it has forced us to actually look at, be more creative. Um, so going forward now, um, we're making a big point to always go hybrid because we've realised we're reaching the tech-savvy people, you know, especially that hits a certain demographic. We're not going to pretend it doesn't, like the young people especially. We love to sit behind their screen. Um, we're sorry to parents if we're encouraging them to look at their phones more. <laughs> but we're like, yeah, they're looking at their phones anyway, so let's target them there. Um, so it's forced us to be more hybrid, and that's actually making us more accessible as well. Um, so, you know, pre-pandemic, we were always in-person events. We weren't always accessible. But now a hybrid model is going to make us reach more people nationwide, people up in the islands who have trouble getting to um, in-person events as well. They won't miss out. We hope in future when we have in-person events to also be able to use a platform to make it digi- digitally accessible as well. So we have more attendees, essentially, and a diversity of um, communications too. Um, so that's what's going to be the aim model going forward. It's not going to be strictly either in-person or strictly online now. So, yeah, we're going to make use of that. We're going to make we're going to work hard on that and just force ourselves to be more creative that way. Just finally, we, we saw in 2014 that the North East voted 60% against independence, uh, you know, and we, we've, we've obviously seen uh, a lot of changes since 2014. Are we seeing people's opinions change? Um, and if people are still being held back, what do you think are the uh, main issues? And do you think the uh, experience with Brexit in the last five years and the, the references we made to, you know, what's happening at Westminster, do you think that's changed uh, the way people feel about uh, uh, independence? Well, I think I think in terms of what's holding us back, in terms of winning support for independence in the North East, it's perhaps the perception that the North East won't be listened to. 
um, in the independent Scotland. I think that's got a lot to do with the Westminster government, actually. Um, there, there is a perception that we'll hear on the doors that there's a general lack of understanding of issues in the North East, like fishing and farming and the oil and gas industry. Um, this, you know, this probably does translate to us into Scotland as well. It might be a wrong perception of the North East system to a Scottish level, but I still think it is a very common perception. Um, but in saying that, I, I do think that folks' opinions are changing in the North East. I mean, you're seeing it in the polls. Maybe not as much as you would expect with everything that's happened, but certainly changed. And, and that's without a proper national campaign for independence, which I think is the key in that. Um, and that's what AIM is doing just now. That's the whole point of, of AIM. But there's a number of events and, and things that have happened in politics that has kind of normalised that idea of independence in the North East um, and it goes down to a number of things. Probably the, the most important being industry in that, you know, the, the north of east of Scotland has a heavy reliance on the oil industry and the thought of a just transition is a very real fear. It's not just a slogan. Um, and, and I think there is a fear in the north east that we will be left behind. Um, and you've seen it in the past, uh, the, the Tory government leaving behind industries uh, in the past. And you can see that they're not prioritising a just transition. I mean, you only need to look as far as Gillian mentioned it earlier on. You don't need to look as far as a few months ago when UK government snubbed Acorn carbon capture and storage facility in St Fergus and gave funding to a project which was not anywhere near as advanced in the north of England to hammer into Tory support uh, into Labour supporting areas. You know, this was one of the best opportunities that not just the north east of Scotland had, Scotland in general had in recent times to use the existing infrastructure from the oil and gas industry. And, you know, had so many merits to it, it would be the quickest to get up and running out of all the applications across the UK, it would have created jobs, it was the most advanced project, you know, it, it was the most cost effective and essentially the most capable project out of all the applications that didn't go ahead because of an entirely political decision made from the Westminster governments. Why it matters where government decisions are taken, it can't, we can't continue to let our industries be sidelined because the Prime Minister it has a lack of understanding of the economic concern uh, in the northeast of Scotland. So we need a government that understands our area. I think Brexit's heightened it, you know, and, and in the northeast of Scotland, we are beginning to see the idea of independence becoming, uh, you know, becoming more normal and that, that would be the best thing for, for the area. And Fatima? No, absolutely. I think I'll start by saying, because this is an argument I always have to make time and time again, what are, will our relationship be like with our neighbours post-independence. I think people are under the impression that we're just going to cut off ties with England, that we just hate in association with England. That's not the case. We're not going to ignore our closest neighbours. Um, there's still going to be opportunities to trade with England, only that the decisions are going to be ours. So I hope we keep pushing that argument because I think that's what's holding quite a few people back. The other thing that I think, obviously Theo's mentioned that, yes, there is progress, but it's obviously a harder case for us to make um, for independence because we we're talking about change. We we're talking about uh, showing people a vision that they can't yet experience. You know, it's not people want something tangible. And we're saying they don't know what an independent Scotland is like because they haven't lived it mm -hmm. yet. So that's that's what's making it very difficult um, to change minds because they're like, well, you know, it's a what-if situation for us. Aren't we just better, safer? So that's why it's really hard for us to really break into those people who are undecided, who are uncertain. And the best thing we can do here is just to be patient in answering their questions and help them steer themselves away from the scaremongering, the fear-mongering that's coming from... Because they're making really good use Indeed. of, oh, yeah. gonna, your life well, is going to be ruined. Well, well, I think more and more people are saying it's actually safer to be independent now than you see what the UK <laughs> government's doing. That's, it's that's far riskier to stay with this uh, 
this UK government, especially when you look at what they've done to uh, to people's uh, household income, when they look at what they've done to trade, and you see the disaster that you know they've led us into with Brexit, it, it, you know the safest course now has to be independence. Julian, Julian, on that on that yeah, subject, the, no. the Brexit thing. So you talked about the numbers that, that voted yes in, in in the area. Well, having lived here my whole life. Um, I thought it was pretty bloody good, actually. That we got to forty percent, <laughs> you know. So, you know, so I, I know, I know. We've been we've been turning SNP people in, in the northeast for quite some time, but actually, forty percent for independence. That was quite a shift from from where we were. So we need to build on that. But certainly, I think Brexit has really has hit Aberdeen City. I mean, the, the numbers are there. Mm-hmm. It's hit Aberdeen City and Aberdeenshire the hardest mm-hmm. in the whole of the UK. And although we may, maybe we have a lot more people working in oil and gas in terms of like people's numbers than we do in agriculture, the influence of the agricultural sector in the general mood of how the votes go in the northeast is huge. I mean, whole communities, um, the people who who work the land and who own the land and and and, and who farm are very influential in their communities, and they. Are suffering seed potato merchants mm. and, and growers and, and can't get can't get their seed potatoes into European markets because of of the mess that the UK government have made of well, that Brexit. Got, it's true to say, Julian, they've got worse to come as well because as we see these new uh, trade deals, which are tiny, tiny things in comparison yeah. to what we've lost with the EU, uh, you can see farmers are going to find that the you know there are going to be products coming into our markets. Uh, which don't meet the standards that they've been producing yes. to, uh, which are going to, you know, likely reduce their ability to to make a living uh, on it, and uh, and it's it's going to leave a, you know a very unfair uh, playing field when we know we've got quality products, but but the, but the same could be said. You know, we're talking about the northeast. The same could be said about the fishing community, which were yes. promised the earth and have absolutely been. Uh, you know, if I use the. The, the, the same kind of terminology, they've been cast adrift uh, in terms of the Brexit uh, situation, haven't they? Very much so, very much so. And when you mess with those sectors and the individuals and the, I say, the very influential figures that there are in, you know, uh, the fishing sectors, or even like the NFUS, mm-hmm. you know, the movers and shakers in there, the Tories have promised them the earth. And if they're betrayed, which they are being, and have been, um, yeah. they'll never get them back. Mm-hmm. And so we need, we need an offer. We need an offer. We need to, you know we need to be putting our money where our mouth is. We need to be um, as we are. The likes of myself and Richard Thompson are working with these groups and trying to get um, get things changed at UK level. Of course, they don't listen to the SNP, but we need to be saying, well, this wouldn't be happening in independent Scotland because mm. we would still be trading with the EU because we would be back in and we would be protecting your livelihoods and your sectors that are so important for the not just the, the, the economic health mm. of the but the actual physical health of the people of Scotland in terms of the produce that we have. So this comes back to my original point about campaigning for independence, that we've got those influential people in those sectors already. Mm-hmm. They need to be campaigners. We need to be um, you know, working with them to campaign to their peers and their tribes. I know I keep on saying tribes, but they're, you know, that it's so important mm-hmm. um, because we need to always say we can do better than this. Mm-hmm. 
imagine saying in 2014, imagine Boris Johnson as Prime Minister. Folk would have laughed you out of town. In Here fact, I, th- I think that was something that did actually come up on a TV interview with uh, uh, the leader of the, uh, the the Better Together campaign in Scotland, who, whose name escapes me for the moment um, uh, there, but uh, Blair... Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Blair, I, Blair somebody. <laughs> Blair. But but the point the the point being that uh, that that uh, that that he 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 actually poo pooed that he said no, there's no chance that's going to be the case. No chance Boris Johnson can ever be prime minister. And here we are, all these years later, with him as uh, prime minister, and all those promises that were made in 2014, as we can see, have been uh, you know been taken away. As have. Um, it's going to be said the promises that be made from Brexit, as we were just talking about just now, we were going to get all these, uh, you know, things that uh, were going to benefit Scotland. It's turned out it's just been harmed for Scotland. I, time has robbed us, I'm afraid, of uh, going any further. But I think we could have had another hour's conversation here if we uh, if we kept on. Can I thank you, uh, Theo, uh, Fatima, and Gillian for joining us on uh, the Scotland's Choice. Uh, podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. It's been great to speak to you. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Scotland's Choice. You can find new and previous episodes of Scotland's Choice at scotlandschoice.scot and you can watch the full length videos on YouTube. If you can share this podcast and our videos, it can help others with their decision on Scotland's future. I'm Drew Hendry and I hope you'll join me next time on Scotland's Choice. Mm-hmm.